The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. My name is Scott Hand. I'm the community engagement and church planting pastor here at Parkwood. And I want to welcome you to church this morning. We are very glad that you are here. Today is the second sermon in a two-week series on evangelism in which we are launching an initiative called Who's Your One? In Who's Your One, we're asking everybody to prayerfully identify one person that you already know, someone who's already in your life, and commit to doing three things with them. Number one, to praying for them. Number two, to deepening the relationship with them. And number three, to share the gospel with them. We desire, God desires for the gospel to go to all peoples. And that includes the millions of our neighbors, as well as the billions in the nations. And as you've heard the last couple of weeks, it starts with one. Over the course of the last week, I've received many emails and phone calls and texts and words of encouragement from many of you in regards to your one. You've told me about your one, who they are and how you met them and how you're encouraged by the Lord's working in your life to move you forward in evangelism and how you're going to pray for them and share the gospel with them. I want to thank you for that. I'm encouraged by that. The staff is encouraged by that. We want to know who your one is. We want you to share with, the, with your growth group who your one is so y'all can pray collectively. If you missed last week, I encourage you to go online and check out the sermon. We looked at Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 11 through 21, about the ministry of reconciliation. We saw how Paul calls us to be compelled by the fear of the Lord, controlled or constrained by the love of Christ, and sent out as ambassadors to engage the world in the ministry of reconciliation. Now, today's sermon is a continuation of that theme as we ask the question, how do I be an ambassador? How do I live my life in such a way that people know I'm associated with Jesus? I'm with Jesus. Or to use the words of our text this morning, how am I a friend of Jesus? Our text will be John 15, the gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. Please grab a Bible and turn there. If you don't have one, there's one in the seats underneath you, near you. Our text this morning is on page 902 in your chair Bible. Also, while you're turning, I want to take the time to invite you, if you're new with us this morning, to grab a Connect card in the seat back in front of you, fill that out, and put it in the offering plate at the end of the service. I think we got eight or nine new cards last week. That's encouraging. 
Thank you for that. We want to know that you're here so we can follow up with you. Will you please stand as I read the text for this morning? John 15, 12 through 17. Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we confess that our love for you, our love for each other is only made possible because you first loved us. We praise you for being the lover of our souls. We ask you now to come as we open your word. I pray I can rightly divide it, that we will worship you as we listen to the word being preached, that you will do a work among us as we discuss what it means to be your friend. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The main idea this morning is this. Friends of Jesus are characterized by love, obedience, mission, and prayer. Love, obedience, mission, and prayer. Now, before we dive into these characteristics, we need to first take a look at the Gospel of John for context. In case case you've missed it, knowing the context of a certain passage is incredibly important for understanding that passage. So the Gospel of John is the fourth Gospel written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The author was the Apostle John. He was one of the most three intimate associates of Jesus along with Peter and James. They were with Jesus at some events that the other disciples were not, such as the resurrection of Jairus' daughter, the transfiguration, and at the Garden of Gethsemane. They were also the first disciples that Mary met after Jesus' resurrection. What this means is that John is able then to provide us with a very firsthand and personal eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. This is the same John that authored 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. John is often called in church history, John the Evangelist. The stories and teachings that he puts in his gospel show that he has one thing in mind, people believing in Jesus. In fact, he openly tells us this, In his gospel, chapter 20, verse 21, he writes, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John wants people to come to know Jesus. In fact, the word believe occurs twice as much in the gospel of John as in any other gospel. And John's gospel is the only one that contains the wonderfully gospel rich I am statements of Jesus. Just listen to these. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. So if you want to read a book on evangelism, read the Gospel of John. It's filled with it. It is the purpose of his gospel. Now, narrowing into some context here, John chapters 13 through 17 all take place on the same night. This is the night of the Last Supper, when Jesus will eventually be betrayed and arrested and tried. Chapter 13, try to track with me here. Chapter 13 begins with Jesus and the disciples already in the upper room for the Last Supper. Chapter 18 begins with them at the Garden of Gethsemane. 
So try to get this in your mind. I want you to picture this. What most likely is happening here, Jesus and his disciples, Judas has already left to go betray Jesus. So it's 11 disciples plus Jesus. They leave the upper room and they are walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. They are walking to where Jesus will be arrested. And what he's doing is he's spending this time, 13 through 17, to prepare his disciples for his departure. He's about to leave. So he's teaching them final preparations. Now, for our text this morning, chapter 15, 12 through 17, within the broader preparation, Jesus instructs the disciples on what it means to be his friend. And why is that important? At this moment, in this context, why does he teach them what it means to be his friend? The reason is, and you have to get this, the disciples are about to become ambassadors. Remember last week we talked about an ambassador represents and how an ambassador is not with the person that you represent? Well, Jesus is about to leave. So he's saying to the disciples, you got to know what it means to be my friend because I'm not going to be here soon. You got to live a life in such a way that people know you're with me. You're my friends. You're my disciples. You're my associates. So he teaches them what it means to be his friend. And he, give a, he gives us four characteristics of what it means to be a friend of Jesus. Four characteristics. That's the outline of, of, the, of the sermon this morning. Number one, friends of Jesus are characterized by loving each other unconditionally. Friends of Jesus are characterized by loving each other unconditionally. Verse 12, Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And then in verse 17, he says it again. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The word for love here is agape, which means unconditional, sacrificial love. Jesus, in his death, provided for us the perfect example of unconditional love as he laid down his life for his friends. Now, the one another here refers to other brothers and sisters in Christ, other Christians, other believers. So is Jesus saying that we should die on the cross for the sins of our brothers and sisters? Of course not. What he's calling us to is to love each other with a selfless and sacrificial devotion. Now, last week, we talked a great deal about reconciliation. We talked about how, man, because of our sin, we are separated from God. Our relationship is broken. But God, because he loves us, sent Jesus to die on the cross for us to take away that sin, to make us the righteousness of God so that we can be restored into a right relationship with God. But there's one aspect of reconciliation that we did not talk about last week. You see, when we are reconciled to God, a profound thing happens in regards to us. When we individually are reconciled to God, we gain brothers and sisters in Christ. We gain all those other people who have already been reconciled to God. Galatians 4, 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption. Folks, that's one of the beauties of adoption. My wife and I have four kids, two are adopted. They came to us after the other two were born. So when they came into our life, they didn't just get a new mom and a dad. 
They also gained brothers and sisters, right? They gained people who were already in our family. It's the same to us when we are reconciled to God. We gain those others who have already been reconciled to God. We gain a whole new set of brothers and sisters. And those brothers and sisters are also sent out as ambassadors for Christ in this world with the ministry of reconciliation. And Jesus says we must love them unconditionally. Now, ooh, Southern America. Ooh, boy. I think we do part of this really, really well. All right? Part of loving each other unconditionally. So if somebody's sick or, or a family member dies or you're just going through a hard time, man, I think we love that person so well. We rally around that person. We cook meals for them. We, you know, take them back and forth to the doctor. We visit them. We watch their kids for them. I think part of it, we love, and that's great. Praise God that we do that. He is honored by that. But there's another aspect of this, of loving each other unconditionally, that I don't think we do very well. And here's what it is. I think we, we let petty Differences, non-essential things, personal preferences get in the way of us loving each other unconditionally. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I was home from overseas. I was taking a seminary class at, at, at Southeastern. It was the first day of class, and the professor was having us go around the room and kind of introduce ourselves. You know, I'm he wanted you to say your name, where you're from, and the church that you were currently working at. So we're going around the room. It's a bunch of normal stuff. And then this guy in the middle raises his hand. He says, hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm from such-and-such a place. He said, I'm the lead pastor of Coat Rack Baptist Church. And then they move on. Well, I'm like, whoa, wait, 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 wait. I raise my hand. I say, professor, can we go back to that guy? He said, sure. I said, I said dude, what's the name of your church? He said, Coat Rack Baptist Church. I said, that can't can't be real. I said, is there a story behind that? He said, yeah, yeah. I said, will you tell us? He said, sure. So he told the whole class the story of Coat Rack Baptist Church. He said about 50, 60 years ago, the church split over a coat rack. Okay. He said there was a coat rack that a very important special person in the church years and years and years ago had either donated or built, I can't remember. And for decades, the coat rack sat on the platform next to the pulpit, just sat right here. <clears throat> and so some people in the church had the crazy idea, hey, why don't we actually move the coat rack into the lobby and use it as a coat rack? Well, of course, that angered people. We've always had it right here. This is where it's always been. We can't change it. Right? Don't, don't move my coat rack. That's what people were saying to the pastor. Don't move my coat rack. So the church fought over it. A group of people said, fine, we'll take our coat rack and leave. They went three miles down the street, planted a new church, took the coat rack, put it right beside the pulpit on the stage and called it Coat Rack Baptist Church. I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. This is a true story. Now, Before you think this is just some isolated incident that happened 50 years ago, and this doesn't apply to today, Pastor. Pastor, this is 2019. We all just love each other. I've done some more research. And I'm indebted here to Tom Rainer. Tom Rainer was the former president of Lifeway. 
uh, he, he, is, he does a tremendous job of doing research and studying things to help pastors and leaders know how to better deal with our people and with culture and things like that. So here are some reasons why Southern Baptist churches have either had major divisions or split recently. One church fought and divided when the type of coffee was switched from Folgers to Starbucks. One church split when some folks in the church took the church's vacuum cleaner and hid it from other people in the church and would not let them use it. The church fought and split over the vacuum cleaner. Now, I don't know if they called it vacuum cleaner Baptist church or not, but they split over this. In one church, a petition was started to ban the wearing of black shirts, black dresses, or black skirts from anybody inside the church. Because black's the color of the devil, right? And then this one. A major division happened over the length of the worship pastor's beard. Now, Pastor Chad doesn't have a beard, so we don't have to worry about that one, right? Okay, let me be clear with a few things. These are funny. I mean, we can laugh at these, I think, but we can't miss the point. These are true stories. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are letting petty, non-essential things stop them from loving each other unconditionally. And folks, this is embarrassing Because when we don't get along, it affects our message. We can't be ambassadors when we don't get along. People know. Don't think for a second that people outside of here don't pay attention to what happens in these walls. They know that we fight over dumb stuff. They know know we do. I had a conversation with an atheist buddy of mine one time. I was pleading with him to believe in the gospel. He said, he said, I don't want to go there. He said, y'all fight more than anybody. He said, I can fight with anybody. Now, what's he saying right there? Go, try to get behind what he's saying. He's saying we're no different than anybody. He's saying we're just like the world. I could fight with anybody in the world. Why would I want to go there? We should be distinct from the world. When we don't get along, it limits our effectiveness as ambassadors. Now, I know I'm belaboring this point, but folks, Jesus belabors this point. Loving one another is a major theme of these chapters of preparation 13 through 17. I want you to turn in your Bibles to chapter 13. John chapter 13, 13 through 35. John chapter 13, 13 through 35. Here's what Jesus says. He says, children, he's talking to the disciples. I am with you just a while longer because he's on his way to the cross. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, So now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command. Love one another. Listen, by this, what's this? Loving one another. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's how the world knows that we're friends of Jesus. Because we love one another. We, as brothers and sisters in Christ, if we get along, the world sees that we belong to Jesus. Now, lest you think this is just a domestic problem, something that just happens here, let me ask you a question. And this this one burdens me deeply. This one is not funny. 
Do you know the number one reason our Southern Baptist international missionaries have to come home? Have, why they have to leave the field? I'll give you multiple choices. Is it A, culture shock? B, difficulty in learning the language? C, homesickness? Or D, relationship troubles with other missionaries? D. Our, our own missionaries have to leave the field by the dozens every year because they cannot get along with other missionaries. Folks, that's embarrassing. We ought to be ashamed of that. One of our greatest hindrances in mission, both locally and globally, is our inability to get along with one another. God doesn't want you to love one another so you'll feel good about yourself. It's because it affects the mission. Folks, we're on the same side. Do you get that? We're on the same side. Here's what happens. When our focus is on you or me, what you've done wrong to me or what you've done or what I need or what you need, when that's our focus, we're going to fight. We're going to fight if that's our focus. But if our focus turns to God and his mission in the world, then together we go out to accomplish the mission. And then you know what? We get along because I need you and you need me. I can't do it by myself. Neither can you. We need each other. So God calls us to love each other unconditionally. But that is not all he calls us to do. There, is a, there are more characteristics. Number two, friends of Jesus are characterized by obeying Christ's commands. Obeying Christ's commands. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. The word friend comes from the word phileo, which simply means friendship. It's where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Now the connection between love and obedience is also a theme, major theme of Jesus in his preparation of the disciples. Just a few verses up in verse 10, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This isn't rocket science. This isn't complicated. It doesn't require much explanation. The point is, at the heart of sin is rebellion against God's law or disobedience. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. What's the original sin? Disobedience. God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they did it anyway. They disobeyed. To disobey shows a lack of trust. Without trust, there can be no friendship. You see the connection between obedience and friendship? Now, Jesus takes this a little further in verse 15. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, A servant is not usually told the reason for the task given to him. He's simply told what to do and he must obey. A friend, however, is someone who knows the purpose behind the task and then willfully adopts it as his own. Jesus has informed us of his thoughts, his plans, and his purposes. So if we are to be friends of Christ, we must trust him and then obey. So what are we to obey exactly? Jesus' commands. 
Verse 14 could also be translated like this. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So Jesus doesn't have a singular command in mind here. It's all of his commands as a whole. We don't have time to go into all of them, but I'll give you a few examples. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, we need to notice something before we move on. We need to notice that obedience here is active. Notice that Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, this is a small detail, but it's really significant because I'm sure most of you have heard the objection to Christianity. Man, you guys got too many rules. You can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do this. If we're not careful, the whole Christian life can be about what you can't do. Jesus doesn't talk about that. He says, do. He says, go and do. It's active. Here's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, abstinence from evil, so not doing evil, is a great part of righteousness, but it's not enough for friendship. If a man can say, I am not a drunkard, I'm not dishonest, I'm not a violator of the Sabbath, I'm not a liar, so far so good. But such righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, and they will not enter the kingdom of God. It is well if you do not willfully transgress. But if you are to be Christ's friends, there must be far more than this. It would be a pretty poor friendship, which only said, hey, I'm your friend, and to prove it, I don't insult you. I don't rob you and I don't speak evil of you. That's not a true friend. Surely there must be more positive evidence to verify friendship. Obedience is active here, which leads us into our third characteristic. Number three, friends of Jesus are characterized by going and bearing fruit. Going and bearing fruit. Verse 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The first thing we must notice is that God is the initiator. He chose us. We didn't choose him. He appointed us. We didn't appoint ourselves. So go back to the context for a second. Jesus and, Jesus and his disciples are walking to the garden. He's preparing them, right? And he says, I choose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. What does that sound like? Sounds a lot like Matthew 28, what I just read. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Folks, this here in John is like a pre-Great Commission. Jesus is choosing, appointing, and sending. Now, now, the term fruit here is an interesting word. It can certainly mean Christian character as evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit. From Galatians 5, 22. Friends of Jesus ought to certainly exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In fact... When we do that, when we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, it actually helps with the first thing Jesus tells us to do, to love one another. If you're a lovable person, other people have an easier time loving you, right? So certainly that's in mind here. But the primary meaning of fruit here, and really in the whole of the New Testament, is the conversion of sinners. It has to do, fruit has to do with carrying out the mission of God. I'll give you one example. John 4 35 and 36. This is right after Jesus encounters the woman at the well. 
He says to his disciples, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Fruit for eternal life. Within the harvest metaphor in the Bible, it's referring to mission, conversion of sinners. But it must be fruit that abides or lasts. The word abide here is used all over the Gospel of John. It means to remain. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches, Jesus says. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So here's the pattern of the Bible if you've never picked it up. I'll just use me as an example. I abide in the vine, Jesus is the vine. I abide in the vine so that I can bear fruit. The fruit that I bear abides in the vine so that they will bear fruit. That fruit abides in the vine so that they will bear fruit. You see the pattern here? It's all over the Bible. 2 Timothy Timothy 2.2 says the same thing. Paul says to Timothy, entrust what I teach you to faithful men who will what? Who will teach others also. So we make disciples who make disciples. We plant churches that plant churches. It's the pattern of the Bible. Your fruit must abide and then bear more fruit. I had the privilege in the fall of 2016 to speak at the funeral of a local pastor overseas. He was a local man. He was born over there. He lived over there. He ministered over there. And he actually became kind of famous in history due to some political struggles that were going on at the time, decades ago. Uh, He was the pastor to some pretty prominent people. (laughs) He lived in America for a while. He was educated all over. He was a pretty well-known pastor. Now, the custom overseas where we lived was when someone died, you, you, you immediately held a f- funeral, but it was only for family. It was a closed service only for close family. Then a year later, on the one-year anniversary of the person's death, you held a big celebration of life, a huge funeral where you invited everybody, and these were usually pretty big. It was at this one-year celebration that I was asked to speak at this man's funeral. Now, full disclosure, I actually wasn't the first one asked. They asked my supervisor, but he was out of the country at the time, so the request fell to me. Now, this man was 94 years old when he died, and they told me I had three minutes, and there were a lot of people (laughs) at this funeral. Now, the week before the funeral, though, I'm trying to get to know this man through other people because I never met him. So I'm talking to his family, his friends. They had a museum that they actually built in his honor in the city. So I went to the museum, tried to learn as much as I can about him. And as I'm talking to people and looking at this stuff, one thing kind of kept popping up. People kept saying, you know, I became a Christian because he shared the gospel with me. I became a Christian through his teaching and preaching ministry. Yeah, I became a Christian because when I was a kid, he came and, you know, did something at our church. Over and over and over and over, it was these types of stories. So I knew then what I would say at this man's funeral. At the funeral, I walked up on stage, I opened my Bible to Matthew chapter 7, and I read verses 16 through 20. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You will recognize them by their fruit. And I looked out at the crowd of people 
And I said, you're all here today because you're his fruit. He was faithful to God to minister to you, to share the gospel to you, to preach Christ to you. And that's why you're here. Praise God, he took that seriously. Thank you. And I sat down. But ever since then, it's made me wonder and ask the question of myself, when I die, are people going to come to my funeral because I was a good man? Are people going to come because I was a nice guy, because I was a loving husband, because I was a good father? I hope they say those things about me when I die. Sure. I'm not saying that. Those are good things. Those are God honoring things. But will there be anybody that can come to my funeral and say of me as I'm laid out here, I'm here because I'm his fruit. I'm here because he shared the gospel with me. I'm reconciled to God because he told me how to be reconciled to God. I was racked with that question for years. I still am. Are people going to come because I'm a good old boy or because I shared Christ with them? Now, I have to reiterate here. It is not me or you that has the power to save anyone, right? Our words don't save. God is the one who saves. The Holy Spirit regenerates the heart to respond to the gospel. But don't miss this. God, in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, for I don't always understand this, but he chooses to use us, right? He calls us his ambassadors. <laughs> so we must be faithful to proclaim the message. We are called to go and bear fruit if we want to be called friends of Jesus. And that leads us to the final point. Number four, friends of Jesus are characterized by praying fruit-bearing prayers. And then you probably think, what's a fruit-bearing prayer? Well, I'll explain. The end of verse 16 says, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So here's the point. The purpose of prayer is for carrying out the mission of God. Or worded another way, God is glorified when we go bear fruit that comes about from his answering our prayers. Now, I think we typically look at this like this. We typically think, okay, Lord, I'm gonna pray according to your will in your name uh, and then I'm going to go try to, I'm going to go try, right? Isn't that how we typically think about this? That's not what Jesus says. Jesus turns that on his head. Jesus says, go and bear fruit. <laughs> go and bear fruit. It's active. It's proactive. It's intentional. It's work. He says, go and bear fruit so that your prayers will be answered. So there's a major assumption here, and that is that our prayers are for fruit bearing, that is the only way that makes sense. David says it like this in Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now that order is key. Your heart must care about God and his purposes above all. And then the desires of your heart will be desires to carry out the mission of God on the, in the world. And then God will give you the desires of your heart. John Piper says this, the desires of the heart become legitimate matters of prayer when the heart delights in the Lord above all things. If you want your prayers to be answered, pray for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Pray for God's glory to be made manifest in places where it's not. Pray for lost people to be reconciled to God. Pray for Jesus's name to be spoken of in places where they've never heard it. Pray for you to have the boldness to open your mouth and speak of Christ. Those prayers I will answer, Jesus says. 
I think some of us have no desire for God's kingdom to come on earth. We have no desire for his purposes to be made manifest in my life. We don't care about the lost or the souls of lost. And then, and then we pray and we get mad at God for not answering our prayers. Now, perhaps I've confused you a bit or maybe angered you a little bit. That wasn't my intention, but I'm going to seek to clarify some points by quoting from two books to help make my point. The first is by our own founding pastor, Dr. M.O. Owens. In 2009, he wrote a book called God, Do You Hear Me? It was a book about prayer. Listen to what he says. This is so good. This is clear and concise. He says, the clear teaching of the Bible, clear teaching of the Bible is that the basic purpose of prayer is the establishment and progress of the kingdom of God. Dr. Moeller, Al Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer. And in it, he delved into each phrase, examining the meaning behind each individual phrase. It's a powerful book. Now, as we all know, the Lord's Prayer says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Moeller points out the first thing that we do is address the most high God. Make sure that we're addressing the right thing, the right person. God in heaven, the most high God. And then we praise him. Hallowed be thy name. Now, the first thing that we are called to ask for or desire is that his kingdom would come. God's kingdom would come. Moeller points out that one kingdom cannot come without the removal of another kingdom. Here's, here's what he says. This is the quote. The reign of Christ is the reign of a true king who demands allegiance. One who will disrupt the order of our lives and will call us to abandon our own pursuits for the sake of his. Thus, when we pray your kingdom come, we are praying something incredibly dangerous because it endangers our comfort. By praying your kingdom come, Jesus teaches us that we are ultimately meant to value God's agenda, not our own. By making God's kingdom paramount in our hearts, we are setting aside our own paltry attempts at personal glory to pursue the glory of King Jesus. See, everything that comes after that in the Lord's Prayer, give us, our, give us this day our daily bread, lead us not into temptation, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. All of the stuff that comes after your kingdom come is in service to our desire for God's kingdom to come. So, so practically speaking, the way this works out in our lives is that our prayer times need to be focused on the, missions, on the mission of God as we live in this world. So before you go to the gym, before you go to work, before you take your kids to the park or play basketball or before you go to growth group, you're praying that what you're doing, God will use you to advance his kingdom on earth. That's evangelism. That's disciple making. That becomes the focus of our prayers. I'm not saying you can't go to the gym. I'm not saying you can't play basketball. I'm saying the reason you do those things is now different, is for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Here's another Piper quote. God cares about the little things in your life as long as your heart is for the big things. That's the point. Prayer is for fruit bearing. So what this morning? <clears throat> Much like last week, I'm going to ask you one main question and some smaller ones underneath. Here's the main question. Are you a friend of Jesus? Now, I don't mean are you a Christian. That's not what he's saying here. Are you a friend of Jesus? Based on the four characteristics of being a friend of Jesus, 
Are you a friend of Jesus? Let's go point by point. Number one, do you love one another unconditionally? Are you at odds with a brother or sister here today or in this church? Here, here's when it really gets. Is there a fellow ambassador that because of your strained relationship, you could not engage together with them in the ministry of reconciliation? Remember what I said, our loving one another is not just so we'll feel good. It's because it hurts our message if we don't. If, if so, if there's a problem, I want you to go and deal with that brother or sister. I'm serious. Go deal with them. It affects our message. But you must go in a spirit of forgiveness. And you must go in a spirit of humility, remembering that part of the fruit is the fruit of the spirit. You got to be a lovable person. But go and deal with it. Number two, are you obeying Christ's commands? Now, obviously, we can't obey all of them. That's impossible. We're sinful people. That's why it's a characteristic of Jesus's friendship. Are you characterized by obedience? I think some of you, you don't have to think about it. You know you're not. You're, you're self-consumed. You said, you know, Pastor, I just got so much going on in my life right now. I'm just going, God's going to have to take a back seat for a while. Or for some of you, you haven't even obeyed the greatest commandment yet. You don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. You're not a Christian. I beg of you. I plead of you. I, I want you <laughs> to be reconciled to God. I pray that today will be the day of salvation for you. Please come to me. Come to one of the other pastors or elders. We would love to talk to you and to introduce you to Jesus. Number three, are you going and bearing fruit? Now, this is really the message from last week, right? Are you engaging in the ministry of reconciliation? Are you taking seriously your role as ambassador? Are you producing fruit? Now, this is your one. This is really where who's your one comes into play. Now, we, as I said last week too, our desire is ultimately for us to have a lifestyle of evangelism that everywhere we go, everybody we talk to, we're seeking to share the gospel with. But for right now, in this season, we're asking you to do that with one person. So right now, during the time of response, I want you to think about your one, pray about your one. That's your fruit. Plead to the Lord on their behalf to be reconciled to God, to use you to share the gospel with them. If you have not chosen your one, I pray that right now you will pray to God. Say, God, give me a burden for somebody in my life. God will answer that prayer. And when he does, have the courage to commit. That's my one. And then lastly, I want you to take an honest assessment of your prayer life. And ask the question, am I praying fruit-bearing prayers? You want to know how to know if you're praying fruit-bearing prayers? Take your prayer list, your prayer journal, give it to a non-believer and say, hey, would you look over this and tell me what I care about? That's a quick way to find out. Hey, take a look at this and tell me what matters to me. What's what's most important in my life? Take a look at this. What are they going to say? They're going to say, man, you really care about health. You really care about people getting better. Or, man, you really care about your family. That's, man, you, all these, that's really great. Or, man, you really want more stuff. Or are they going to say, man, you really care about people coming to know Jesus. 
Or, man, you really care about becoming the kind of person that leads people to Jesus. That's how you know if your prayer life is about the mission of God. As I said last week, I want you to take this time and truly open your heart. Let the Lord, sorry, open your heart. Let the Lord deal with you. Pray and plead to the Lord and honestly ask yourself, am I a friend of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, oh, what a joy it is to be called your friend. It's a high calling. It's a difficult task to love one another unconditionally, to obey you, to bear fruit, and to pray prayers that are consumed with the mission of God. I confess this is hard. I confess life gets in the way. We think other things are more important. But Father, if we seek you first in your kingdom, you will provide. Do we trust you enough to do that? I pray now as we sing songs of worship to you, you will move in our hearts. You will convict. You will challenge. You will help us to make some changes in our life if that's what's needed. May we worship you in spirit and truth now as we sing. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.